Welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast with me, Toby Webb. Joining me once again in the podcast is David Harvey from Rayburn Fine Wines, who knows an awful lot about sustainability and a lot more about wine. David, you and I did a podcast a few months ago, which was very interesting on the trends and current issues around certification, natural wine, etc. Listeners, if you want to listen to that, that's on the website, uh, sustainablewine.co.uk. Search for Harvey and and you'll find it uh, well worth listening to. Uh, even though we were sat in a courtyard eating hamburgers when we recorded it, it actually came out quite well. And it's a really good sort of history of some of the sustainability movements in recent years in wine. However, in this podcast, we're aiming to do a wine podcast first and talk about sustainability in wine closures. Um, we don't believe anyone's ever done a podcast on this before, um, but I'm sure there's been plenty of conversations about corks, the importance of cork and the importance uh, of of wine sustainability uh, and bottles and so on but in this podcast we're going to talk about closures um, beyond cork uh, as a material but also including so um, David you sent me a quote when we were preparing for this uh, which I think is a quite a nice way to frame this conversation uh, closures the last enological act of the vigneron um, so why does sustainability in closures matter today sustainability in closures there's there are several several strands to this, um, part of which is uh, related to the the, um, environment in which closures are farmed or manufactured and uh, and the effect on the landscape, uh, especially with relation to um, production of natural cork in the Mediterranean basin. And then uh, the other strand is uh, sustainability of um, getting 100% perfect, uh, perfect tasting viable product to the marketplace without failure due to let's say reduction under screw cap or dents under screw cap that haven't been um, handled and transported properly or um, failure due to TCA or other contaminants in natural cork and um, natural cork technical products. So yeah there's, there's production and there's the impact on wine. So there are three umbrella categories uh, we noted in our preparation for this. Um, of closures and we're not talking about bag in box here we're not talking about kegs we're not talking about wine on tap you know or wine in barrel you know in, in sort of steel barrels that's for another that's another conversation we're talking about closures yeah. so the three yeah. closures at the moment uh, as you define them i think as everybody else would cork screw cap and synthetic um yeah let's talk about cork first of all um cork is obviously the one that goes back in history the furthest there's a a, a rich landscape of cork trees supported by the cork industry which um, have a significant environmental benefit to, to southern Portugal but just give us a sense of the sustainability issues as you see them and with regard to cork. It's, it's kind of interesting um, the old books on wine from sort of uh, up to up to the 16th 17th century the old books on wine acknowledge that you you bought wine and uh, you drank it and it didn't. It got worse with time. You might have had a six or twelve or twenty-four month window, but you bought wine to drink. And so you bought a barrel. If you had enough money, you buy a barrel, have it bottled at home, drink drink all those bottles, and then and then get the next barrel in and bottle that. Um, and otherwise, if you went to a, if you went to a tavern or went to a shop and bought some wine, it came to you in a jug or a carafe, but that had, that had itself been filled from a large vessel. Um, wine was not until 1670, 1700, wine was not systematically put in bottles for aging. And the two things came about. One was machine drilling perfect cylindrical corks out of cork bark, 
And the second thing was uh, advent of technology of um, mouth-blown wine bottles, followed by uh, finally machine-blown uh, wine bottles, which led to lovely, lovely bottles with um, parallel necks that a perfect cork could go into, providing a great seal. And with a bit of sulfites in the wine, you then had something which could age and develop and become the fine wine concept that, that we take for granted now. But pre-1670, pre no one knew about that. And you, you, you might, there might be some historical proof that the Romans did put cork into some of their amphora, but that wasn't the only stopping for amphora, um, or for aging wine in amphora as the Romans did. And then basically since the Roman period to the 1670s, there was no aging wine in bottle that we know of. So cork has got the biggest history as a wine closure, but it only goes back 300, 300 or so years. But um, we noted in, in the preparation for this call that there's a carbon sink of, did you say 2.2 million hectares of cork forests in the Mediterranean yeah, basin? That's extraordinary. Yeah, a third of which is in Portugal. Um, and um, in kilometres squared, you can see that there's 20,000 kilometres squared of what the Spanish called Dehesa, the Portuguese called Montado, of this um, uh, low-density forest of very individually visible trees with grass around them. And then every five or 10 years or so, the grasses and weeds get cut, uh, hoed up and cut back. So that just grass grows up. So you've got grazing land for animals, you've got land for shooting, you've got cork trees you can harvest every nine to 15 years. Um, and that's, that's a large part of Southern European landscape. And where do these numbers come from? Just in case our listeners are wondering if you've... Uh... Them there's up. the Cork Quality Council, there's uh, Wikipedia, um, uh, yeah, there are various reports, like the, the, the closure industry has commissioned reports from people like PwC and so on to look at what's the carbon footprint or what's the, what's the impact of wine closures uh, on the environment. And that, uh, when you talk about natural cork, that takes you straight back to the landscape it comes from. So um, going back to the numbers, cork is about 50 to 70% of wine bottle closures as, as far as we can kind of work out. So it's, it's yeah. very significant. Is the cork industry emphasising its sustainability credentials as a carbon sink with 10.5 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent in the cork forests and landscapes of the, of the Med? Are they emphasising that as part of their reason for people to continue using corks? Or is, is the argument more about the sort of, you know, what cork does to wine, the technical aspects, etc. Cork was cork is our modern era tradition, and it had pole position in that. And in 1999, cork is estimated to be 95% of closures, with just two and three percent left for screw cap and synthetics. Um, but there was a huge, huge expansion in the 80s and 90s of the amount of wine being bottled and, and sealed under closures and sold in the marketplace. And the world went from being a largely non-wine drinking place to a largely, you know, wine interested, wine curious place. So the amount of wine being bottled rose exponentially. Um, and um, the quality of cork is thought to have decreased pretty much in line with the increase of uh, production of cork. And um, the prevalence of um, TCA and other contaminants, which, which collectively give rise to the phenomenon we call corked wine, took us to the level where, where th depending on source, but three to five to seven percent, even 10 percent, according to some scientific research, 
yeah, up to up to three, five, seven, three, five, seven, ten percent of cork was corked, and that's a massive, massive failure rate. So that that um, not natural cork off of its pedestal and gave rise because of various initiatives to um, to synthetics and screw caps really getting a, a foothold into the wine closure industry. Now, it's probably worth stopping for a second. And although we're talking about cork, let's just stop and say there is no perfect closure. And every closure has got its pluses and minuses. So what are they? How can we address them? And which kind of wine at which price points are different closures really suited to? But there, there's no dream scenario here. There, there, there's some baggage and an issue with every closure type. So is the issue with non-cork closures the lack of oxygenation for the wine that cork offers? In screw caps, you can have a variable porosity of liner. So that means you can, you can, you can, a winery can specify the porosity level of the liner. So you can have more or less what's called uh, oxygen transfer rate, OTR. I think properly should be called gas transfer rate because gases leave wine as well as arriving in wine from the environment. Um, but you, you basically, you, if you have a not very porous screw cap liner, you need to have, um, you need to adjust your sulfite levels. So in the first years of a lot of wineries using screw caps, you had issues of reduction because there's no oxygen ingress and traditional higher sulfite levels. And that just led to reduction and off notes and some stinky-ish early experiences with wineries going to screw cap overnight. Um, and then we could say with synthetics, uh, which is dominated by uh, Noma Cork, um, which was invented in 1999, that actually they have much higher gas transfer rates. So the wines are much more mellow and much more accessible, but you wouldn't want to necessarily age a wine for 20 or 30 years under Noma Cork. It wasn't designed for that. It doesn't do that. Um, are there synthetic corks designed for long wine aging? There, there is. It's the, the one I would suggest for, for long aging is called the Ardea Seal Elite, uh, which now belongs to the Guala Closure Group. And that is a, it's a three-piece synthetic. It's double or triple the price of a Noma. Um, you can have an impermeable level on it, or you can have slight permeability. It's basically a, a cap or a cup at the end of the idea seal, um, which is the only part of it that's in contact with the wine that's pretty thick and yeah, can have can have very, very high control on oxygen transfer rate. It's what Ponso uses since it was invented. It's what Cornelison uses on Etna. It's it's a serious closure and they're totally recyclable, which is amazing. Um, yeah, but there is a difference, of course, between being recyclable and being easy to be recycled. Um, yeah. which is a big challenge for lots of materials that say they're recyclable but or compostable but only in the right environment right place right time but um disposal disposal of closures is clearly an issue you know what do you do with a cork that will rot and release greenhouse gas emissions or a screw cap which will be made of i guess what aluminium with with plastic um yeah. and therefore has issues or a synthetic, which if you stick in the ground is going to be there for a very long time. All of them have their issues. But according to our, our preparation notes, those are not the biggest sustainability issues for closures. Um, the biggest ones that we noted, well, you noted in preparation, were the, apart from the recycling, are things like CO2 and water use, um, failure rate, for which leads to wastage. Um, and then for, for corks, the big advantage they have, of course, is the carbon sink they represent. So if yeah. you're advising, a wine, a large wine group who comes to you with this dilemma of um, 
we want to go big on one kind of closure, what, which, would you, which should we choose for the best sustainability impact? What would your advice be, given all these different pros and cons? Um, the, the, I think the company which is really interesting in this respect is Vinventions, uh, which was, is a new company created in 2015, who then bought Nomacork, um, and uh, is the only group that I'm aware of who deal, with, who deal with the manufacture and distribution of pretty much every type of closure that exists. Um, and uh, who are, you know, they represent over 10% of closures uh, in the world marketplace. Um, they've got a team in Nîmes, uh, France, who, who've, who, who, who undertake research on what these closures are doing to wine, but they also um, think about how to, uh, how to advise wineries and how to look at the issues a winery's got in its, um, in its finishing and its closures and you know, what technical know-how they've got and therefore uh, and obviously the, what their budgets are as well and therefore what closures to advise them to use. So they've got a spreadsheet which uh, has on, on one axis size of winery, small to, small to mid-size to large, and um, the nature of wines they're bottling and on the other axis, uh, other axis the different closure types and then a traffic light system of red, green, and orange uh, circles in the grid saying you cannot use this. Like, for example, for them, they would say no small winery should use screw cap. They're far too difficult to set up. There's far too high wastage in calibration. If you've got a 500 bottle run, you lose 100 bottles in calibration. So you can't do a 500 bottle run on a screw cap unless you're, unless you're a masochist. Um, so that's, that's a really great starting point for any winery to look at. I think it's interesting that the bigger wineries that we talk to, they of course all have a, a technical equipment purchasing manager who spends time with their, if they're good, with their, with the supply base in the first place. I got first got interested in closures because of dealing with wineries, even elite wineries with persistent technical faults. And therefore I, re, I came to the point of realizing that speaking with wineries, most leading wineries in the world have not been to barrel makers and have not been to closure manufacturers they just buy from salespeople and buy from catalogs don't necessarily know what they're buying don't know what their other options are and they don't even know how to store necessarily um and the, the greatest testing point to ask a winery is the following show me your closures if they can show you a closure they failed the test no winery should actually have any closures on site when you're bottling five thousand liters of something you buy have delivered just in time open the bag and use all 5,000 litres worth of closures, any that are left over you should destroy because almost no winery in the world's got a room of the, the, right, um, the, right, um, the right design and environment to store a bag, an open bag of closures. Even so, um, Yeah, because the second you've got an open bag of closures, you can have environmental contamination from tiny amounts of volatile substances in the air that are very hard to eradicate and that's how you get post-closure manufacturer, sorry, post-closure manufacturer contamination, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the ways to have corked wine. Um, so, so, the, so the answer to the question is that there isn't really a, one solution. It's very much horses for courses. You choose your wine based upon what you want uh, from the closure, um, and each one of your options has a sustainability impact, but yeah. they are rather different. Um, yeah. and, and listeners, we will post below this podcast the stats that David put together in preparation for this. Um, you know, as of five years ago, you know, 36 billion 
bottle equivalents of wine per annum were vinified. Is that worldwide? Of which about half are bottled, which is interesting because that means that unaccounted for bulk wine in larger formats is out there somewhere. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that can't all be on tap, can it? So, or in bag and box. So I do wonder where that goes. Um, so, yes, for, for wine producers out there, isn't there, easy, there isn't an easy answer, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I suppose the most romantic one has to be traditional cork, right? Because you're supporting that social infrastructure, that, that landscape environment in, in southern Europe. Where, where there isn't a lot of other activity apart from tourism. So I, th- I think there's a big argument for that. Um, and so cork has got the lowest CO2, um, low CO2 footprint. Um, and is, is the, the Dehesa or Montada of the Mediterranean, those 2.2 million hectares of cork oak, was estimated something like 10.5 million tons of CO2. Now, I, I'm not, not great at CO2 numbers, but that's an extraordinary amount of CO2. That's a lot of CO2, I think that's um, fair to say. And um, that for every tonne of cork product in the marketplace, 73 tonnes of CO2. So it's, it's romantic, it's historic. Um, but the, the issue with natural cork is that we are still, well, there's two things. One is there's still cork, uh, cork taint, corked wine. And even though the figures are coming down from the most technical cork groups like Amarim, uh, Cork Supply, M.A. Silver, and uh, Lafitte, um, they are ca- between them, they account for, let's say, just over half the natural cork. So that means half the natural cork comes from many small suppliers who do not have the same technical know-how and research as, um, as those four groups. Um, and, uh, you know, some producers who are very into the closure market, they're saying actually from the non-technical big four, the quality four suppliers, that the, the instance of TCA is actually going up right now. Um, the biggest stats on TCA would probably come from places like the International Wine Challenge, where over 10 years, a quarter of a million bottles tested would give 2.47 or 3.47% of bottles are cork-tainted, corked. And that means that percentage of bottles either not enjoyed or they're just wasted. So you're sending out 3.5% of all wine in the world is wasted. So the glass is wasted, the farming's wasted, the... Um, the, the, the tractor fuel is wasted. It's, that's a phenomenal amount of wastage, um, which, is, which is not great for sustainability. Um, and then the other interesting thing about cork as well is that cork, cork, is, um, cork flavors wine. So as well as cork wine, uh, which we know is a bad thing, there's also what the French call goudeliège, which is the non-negative flavor of cork on wine. But very often, I'm very disappointed with wines that I know from cask and tank once they've been bottled under natural cork, because the flavour is never the same after it's been sealed under a natural cork. And that's, that's that respect, a fascinating point. Would that be the same for, say, you know, a first growth like Chateau Le Tour? Would it be yeah. exactly the same for them? I mean, how can they be happy with that? Because Chateau Le Tour is two different kinds of, of wine, aren't they? Yeah. Are they okay with that? I mean, we don't have to, we're not referring to La Tour specifically here, but, you know, top wine brands, how can they be, be happy with that? So wine, so a lot of, let's say, famous red wines have an élevage in cask, and it will show, its, show the flavour impact on the wine from the élevage in cask. So the, the flavours from the oak barrels, 
and the way the wine interacts with the oak barrels and the toast level and the aging of the staves. And to my mind, that's most beautiful when you don't notice it. It can be there in the background, but it should never be a, not even a visible or notable component. And I have to say a lot of wine in the world is getting better at doing that right now, including Bordeaux. But then you get the second elevage and the natural cork. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the oak tree family's got it in for lovers of pure wine. <laughs> and so it's extraordinary then when you taste wines, wineries that have been using Diam for already 10, 15 years or people under screw cap who are good at it. And you have this purity and neutrality of the wine and you have wine that doesn't have this aromatic flavor deviation caused by a bit of bark, a bit of tree. And um, I have to say, I really, really love that. But um, so that's, that's an interesting thing then. Diam is a, is a you know, the, the world's leading microagglomerate cork-based closure. It's, let's say, 95% cork. But the granules uh, in Diam, uh, bits of cork are broken into tiny grains of different sizes and treated to, rem to remove every single good and bad flavor element under um supercritical carbon dioxide gas and uh then uh recombined either with um food grade pu glue or a new substance called plant-based polyol in the diam origine series and um you then have a, a product which is has a guarantee no tca but no any contaminant nothing there's not even any good flavor of cork it's just a, a taste of nothing so isn't that a bit of a gimmick in the sense that what's the point in using cork in the first place? Why not just have a fully synthetic material? Is that because of the breathability, the oxygen transfer? So they, so with Diam, the, the granule size, it, it, each, the Diam comes in Diam 1, Diam 3, Diam 5, Diam 10, Diam 30. And in, in the different guaranteed lifespan of the, of the Diam cork, there's different gas transfer rate available based on the particle size. And so Diam, what Diam does effectively is buy um, the offcuts of the one-piece cork industry and then rip it to pieces and put it back together in a better than the original, mm -hmm. better, better than the original uh, state and sell a product far cheaper than good one-piece natural cork, which is guaranteed to have no, like, uh, which is guaranteed to have no contamination at all and to maintain wine as it was originally conceived in the cask or in the tank yeah and they didn't set out to do that but that's what they coincidentally did in their design phase so they market themselves as being the guardian of the original rumors of wine wow i mean that's fascinating um so if you are a chateau latour or petrus or a top burgundy producer or you know a top Lunga barolo producer why on earth are you still using corks if all of this technology exists to have the oxygenation benefit of cork without taint, and if the, your purest wine is the one you've just vinified in your vineyard, why on earth would any of these organisations still want to use traditional corks? I think it's history at this point, and uh, um, you know all the historic great wines that we know up to the 80s and 90s were sealed under natural cork. So it's what we know. And the wine world doesn't move fast. It takes 10 or 20 years for a new winery to become known. Uh, it's almost at a generational pace. Okay, Burgundy might become hip in a year, but Burgundy is a very strange place in that respect. Um, and, um, but so you'd, that, you'd, you'd think the owners of these places would be dying to produce a cuvee 
which they would promote as not having that cork impact and you could compare the two or is that just too risky for what is already a, a valuable brand proposition for them you know is it just they don't want to confuse customers and and perhaps take away from the heritage uh, benefit they have there's that um some people know about the risk of natural cork and they buy it very well like luca rowania had uh some issues you know 15 years ago or so and then went on a cork crusade and has ended up with an elite supplier who supplies a uh, Chave and La Loire. And, you know, he's gone from being a normal average buyer of corks an acceptor of cork to being someone who's in control of his cork supplying program, which puts him at the top of the cork using tree. Um, so there are people who buy really well, trying to reduce risk. Um, there's also people who say, look, it, it, it's the thing we know. And look, if, if someone's got a problem with a batch or with a single bottle, I'll just replace it. And that kind of um, that kind of linking up your purchasing of closures and your guarantee, your your personal warranty to consumers, that's fine. What I don't see happening though, on the whole, in the closure game, is that closure manufacturers accurately tell wineries how to buy and how to store their closures, and the wineries don't buy necessarily very well. They're sold to, or they passively buy, and then they even store, which is like ludicrous. And then the, the marketing communication to the marketplace, um, you're buying our, our, this wine, it comes with a screw cap. Leave the screw cap on, it'll be recycled in the recycling industry. Or mm. this is a natural cork, put it in your compost heap. Or um, this, is a, you know, this is a Noma or an Idea Seal Elite. This is readily recyclable, put it in your recycling. I don't, or we use natural cork, the best we can find is maybe a 0.5 or 1% failure rate. If you have that, come back to us. This should be on back labels. This should be on websites. There needs to be this linking up of mm. the communication or marketing of um, the quality control through to the end game, the recycling. And I just don't see that being linked up beautifully at the moment. Great. Thank you, David. We could continue talking about closures all day. Um, there's a phenomenal number of stats and, and things you've put together, which we'll post below this podcast. I think our, our conclusions are, you know that there isn't perhaps one outstanding closure that's better for the environment but from a co2 point of view and a heritage point of view cork um despite its impact on on flavor still seems to be perhaps um more advantageous for a lot of winemakers but i think your message is and tell me if i get this wrong you've really got to do your own research to work out what's best for you um and uh, of course then there's always the consumer responsibility for for disposal disposal of closures so um as ever in sustainability lots of variables lots of uh, complexity but it's been a fascinating uh, conversation david thank you so much for your time thanks david